So, Bakitov, good morning, and welcome to our new series. We're going to be focusing this, t- uh, this series on the process of the Psak. So, how we get from what was said at Sinai to what we're doing today. And the f- we're going to look at this from four different angles, each of them necessary for this, the, the, to understand this. The first of the angles is from the Sinatic, not the Satanic, but from the Sinatic idea to uh, the 21st century practice. How we get from Har Sinai to where we are today. Um, the next time, next uh, next week, we're going to be looking at the role of dispute of machlokes. Everything seems to be a matter of machlokes. Um, is that true? Is it really true that everything is? Why is a dispute part of the process? Then we're going to look at the role of authority and the role of the rabbi, which are all pieces of understanding this process. So let's start at the very beginning. First of all, I want to take a, take a moment to thank Jack and Barbara Siegel, who are sponsoring today's shir, um, Li'ilui Nishmas, um, both Barbara's father and Jack's sister. Um, Barbara's father's name is um, Yosef Meir Ben Mordechai Halevi, Allah Shalom, Mr. Um, Mr. Joseph Schwartz, and Lili Nishmas, Mrs. Sylvia Strix, that is um, Jack's sister, Sima Bas Alexander Zisha Halevi, Aleha Shalom. It's also shown they should have an alias and Shama, and uh, their memory should always be for blessing. Let's, let, let us learn together today. Some of the questions we're going to try to address today are some of the basics we're going to address is how do we know what we're doing? How do we know that what we're doing today is what Hashem wants from us in 2022? Right, very basic question. Um, um, other questions we're going to do is where do the rabbis get all their ideas from? What was really given at Sinai? Why was the oral, Torah oral? How long is the chain of trans- transmission? And how does human ideas really have anything to do with Hashem's will? And what are the guiding principles and the ideas of the rabbis? So just some basic questions we'll try to Try to try to get uh, to try to address, um, and we really need to ask ourselves this because sometimes de- hidden deep inside of us is a is a little heretic that we all kind of you know we, we, we all keep to ourselves. But you know at times time uh, when when sort of the, when the rubber hits the road, we ask ourselves you know does this really matter? You know I'm looking at a you know um, I'm looking at a hechsher and it's like you know and you know does it really matter this one versus that one or you know. Uh, when it comes down to the way I keep Pesach and how, what am I doing to my to my broiler, you know, like, I, I know I'm doing what the rabbis told me to do and what this rabbi told me to do, but is that really what Hashem wants? I mean, like, this is like all equivocating. It's like all, so we say to ourselves, this is really, really matter and somehow deep, deeply, deeply embedded into that is, uh, is, uh, is, is that question. So let's try to figure that out. Let's try to, try to understand where it comes from. And um, you know what I find is amazing is that we're, it, all of this is taught, you know, we're, we're taught so much Torah from the, da- the, you know, the time we go to preschool all the way till now, and we never really, and we never really uh, um, actually um, spend much time um, actually uh, understanding why it is we do what we do. Nobody really explains to us, you know, how this all fits together and why it really matters. And we get a little bit of here, a little bit there, but nobody really t- addresses this in, in one consistent place. So I'm trying to just put together some ideas, which I'm sure some are very obvious and some much less obvious as we do this together. So let's start at the very beginning. So we're, we're, if the, the starting place is, is, um, is where did it all start? So we all know it started at Sinai. Um, there were conversations that happened beforehand. So we know what uh, Hashem's relationship with Avraham Avinu and Yaakov, uh, uh, Yitzhak and Yaakov and so on. Beforehand we know the burning bush. But really in terms of what, what matters to us, um, we have this experience at Sinai where Hashem gave, gave us the Torah. Okay, we're good. We all start at the beginning for, for, for that. I'm afraid, I'm sorry, we're out of sources. I apologize. Um, if Eric could help share, share as well. Um, oh, there's extra one here. Judy, if you need and show, show me over there. Oh, thank you so much. There's one extra. Thank you so much. So here, so let's, let's, uh, <clears throat> let's try to understand. We're told the beginning of Mestachas Awas. We're at the beginning. We'll call it the, the very beginning of everything. It says, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. Moshe received the, the Torah at Sinai. Okay, good. 
That's that. That's that part we got. We sing it in our songs from the moment we 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 get into preschool. Um, but what does that mean precisely? What did he receive? So we know certainly that means he received the Aseres Adibras, right? Because that's what he came down with. At least he tried to come down with, and um, and that was that was then destroyed. But and then we know that more maximally, certainly that means to say the Torah itself, which is actually a fascinating debate as to how the Torah Shabbat the written Torah could have been given if the story hadn't been finished being told yet, right? So Sinai happens 40 years before the end of the Torah's, the Torah's discussion, right? So there's a debate in the Gemara and Gittin. Was it all chasuma nitna or megilas megilas nitnu? Was it given in sections and then sewn together into one big one? Thank you so much. Or was it given in, in, um, in, uh, uh, as one unit that was yet to be unveiled because it, you know, it, it talks about incidents that were yet to happen? So, but be it as it may, we know that the, 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 certainly the written Torah was given, whether it partially or to, in its totality. And the, the question then becomes is, is there anything else? So if you take a look at, the, at Rabbeinu Yonah, Rabbeinu Yonah makes a very basic observation, and he says, on the top of page 2, he says, Bein Torah Shebechstav, Bein Torah What was given at Sinai was both the Torah Shebechstav, the Torah Shebechstav, the written Torah, and the oral Torah. The oral Torah as well, which is so fascinating because so, what, what makes it difficult for us to understand, this is what articulate the un- discomfort that we have with this, is like, you know, there's a machloikis, Rabba and Rav, uh, uh, Rabba and Rav Yosef, Rava and Abaye in the Gemara. And that's what we call Torah Shabbat. That, that, that was given at Sinai. They hadn't, the, the names Abaye and Rava hadn't been invented yet, right? They, those are Babylonian names of sages going to be living, uh, you know, well over a, a millennia later. So that, that was given at Sinai. So that, you know, that, that's why we struggle with this, uh, this concept. So we really have to unpack this in a more sophisticated way, that somehow something was also given at Sinai. So let's remove the names of Abayin and Rav for, for, for a moment and ask ourselves, how, how do we know that was given at Sinai? How do we know that the oral Torah was also given at Sinai? So there's a few reasons we, know, we, we can know this. One is, is that the, Torah refer, the written Torah refers to the oral Torah, a number of places. So like, as an example, in um, in Sefer Tevarim, Hashem talks about, there's an example where the Torah says, You're going to sacrifice, you're going to slaughter the animals, and the way you're going to do it is as I commanded you. Now, if you look through the, the some corpus material of the Torah, the Torah never tells us how to do Zvicha. Right? So, like, so what's it referring to? <laughs> like, the, the Torah says, as I commanded you, but there's no command. It doesn't tell us what, what, what Hashem meant. So we obviously have to look elsewhere. So there must have been something else that already then knew because clearly it was something which related to their food, right? They, had to, they, they were going to eat the next day, right? So they knew somehow how to sacrifice or how to, this is not referring to Korbanos, this is referring to Shechita, right? This is referring to how to, uh, how to actually eat meat. So how do they know that? It must have been somewhere else there was other information which was also being given to them. Fair? As an example, there's many times the Torah does this where it refers to it. Other times, it just without even referring to it, it's obvious, it's patently obvious that there has to be something else. So for instance, like the Torah tells us like this. The Torah says this thing called Shabbos. In fact, it's one of the series of Debrois, and you've got to make sure you do it. And if you don't, you're going to be killed, right? And then, the, the, so the stakes are high. It happens every seven days. We can't really, you know, slip this one under the, under the rug. But we don't know what to do because the Torah never tells us what to do. We know there's fires. That happens in Parshish Vayakel. More than that, I don't know. Where, the, where Borer and Merakeid um, and Tochen, where all that, that came from, that isn't in, that isn't in the Torah. That isn't in the, in the Torah. So I'm looking around. So I know, let's, let's say that, let's say that, that, that um, we got a little bit of leeway. So they got the Torah. Let's say, let's say they find out about this on Sunday morning. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we have six days to figure out what to do. But it doesn't say anything. So the stakes are high. The information is low. So what do we do? There must be that there was other information given. 
Right? What is that, that information? Is how to do that. That was the Torah Shabbat Peh. The instruction manual to the Torah Shabbat Peh. It is clear there's information missing. And it's clear that the information that's missing is explaining what to do with the Torah Shabbat Peh. Right? At least minimally. Doesn't mean to say the entire Torah Shabbat Peh as we have today. But certainly there was more than meets the, than, than I, the eye. Fair? So it's there. And this is, what, this is what was given and transmitted from Sinai. It has to be this. So now the question then becomes is, okay, so what's the relationship between the Torah Shebech Sav and the Torah Shebech Sav? It's written in a document. I have extra information which is also being given, but how do the two relate to each other? So happens to be that there's a great debate on this topic, a fascinating debate on this topic. And it, it is had actually in the, um, ex, um, very explicitly had at least, um, or discussed in the um, 1800s. Um, why in the 18, uh, sorry, in the, in the, the 1900s? Why is that a, a century that's important? Because that's a seri- uh, another time in Jewish history where the Torah Shabbat the oral Torah, is um, questioned. Who questions it? This time around, it was one sect of Jews called the Reform. So they said, "Listen, you know, we accept the Bible, right? Even the Christians got the Bible down, but like, but, but this this thing, the rabbis, like, you know." What's the problem with an organ? <laughs> like, you know, like, why do we have to pray in, in Hebrew? Like, we, German is much more sophisticated, right? That's what the people are speaking on the street. That's what people are talking about in the, talking in the office. So, so let, you know, hey, Mamru, hey, Mamru. That was, that, that's all very nice, but we, we you know, we've, we've come a long way and humanity's developed. And so, they, they, like, show me, show me where it says it, you know, um, it kind of, a kind of thing. So the, the, the sages of the generation had to get up and explain that perhaps the Torah Shabbat Peh is a lot more than you, you imagine it to be. So among those, among the defenders of the Torah Shabbat Peh, of the, we'll call it the posterity, the sum unit of, of Judaism, were great figures like Rav Meir Leibish, whose name we know as to be the, the Malbim, who wrote, a, wrote who was actually a great halachic expert, and he dropped his, he dropped his business in, the, in, the, in writing on Shulchan Aruch and as a, as a more, more typical Rosh Yeshiva style um, writer to, to start writing on Tanakh to defend the oral Torah. What his work is, he starts writing, he writes Sefer Yeshayahu on Sefer Yeshayahu, but he actually starts writing a book called HaTorah Mitzvah, which essentially is a commentary on the Medrash Halacha on Vayikra, because that's where it starts. And he, sh- and he wants to show the validity. So how does he do this? So he describes, and in fact, it's really fascinating to read the Malbim's introduction to what he calls his introduction to Vayikra. Does anybody know what his introduction is called? Does this sound interest? It's called Ayelet Hashachar. He, he calls his, his, uh, his book the, the, the Dawn, okay, the, 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 the Rising Morning Star, okay? And, he, and uh, he does so, and he talks about a conference that he hears about, that, uh, um, which was happened in Taf, Re, uh, in Taf Resh Dalet, I believe this is in 1844, in Brunswick. <laughs> and this was a famous reform conference where many of these Rabbonim and Cantors got together. And he talks about, in the first section over here, and he talks about people who call themselves, uh, you know, leaders of the congregation who are really, really wolves eating their flocks. He, like, he goes into very sort of significant detail, and people who call themselves rabbis, but they really have nothing inside, and these empty vessels start making a lot of noise together and start changing things. So he's, he's very, very strong about this. And he says, and this, and this precipitated my action to, to step in and to explain what Torah is really about. And therefore, here I'm, here I'm going to do it. So it's important to just realize what he's trying to do. So take a look in, um, on page three. In the center of the page here, we have the Malbim. This is the introduction to Ayelet HaShachar. We're going to start about essentially halfway down. The first one of the line is Shirei. Um, um, Shire. The four lines in by the Bechelon. It says, These folks at this conference in Brunswick, um, they said that this, uh, the Torah Shabbat Peh is nice, nice parables. These rabbis, great philosophical ideas and everything, but it's all, it's all a story, right? 
They said it doesn't really. They denied it and they said it really doesn't exist. They, they um, disgraced its sages. They said they really, the rabbis didn't really understand what the Torah was really telling us. The text, if they were more sensitive to the to the, fi- the fine academic tunings of the text, they would know what's really going on. Says the Mal- uh, that's what they claimed. They say, ah, oh, the rabbi is making all these stories up. That's when I started writing on the Bible. And he goes on to say the end of the line. He says, This essay I'm about to write is a tower of defense for the Torah Shabbat Peh. I'm going to not return from the battlefield without having, so to speak, triumphed. I'm going to have proofs all the way through. I'm going to show you that the Torah was in fact divinely given. And how so? So what's the proof? How does, how does he do that? Here's the critical line. Listen to the Malbim's theology. Really, the Torah Shabbat, the oral Torah, is in fact deeply embedded into the Torah Shabbat. If you read the text actually with a really sensitive eye, you will know that the only outcome can be the Torah Shabbat. He says, If you really understood how Torah works, you would automatically arrive at the outcome, which is Torah Shual Peh. Which, and now he goes on to, to say, so what are the rules? So how do you read that? And he goes on to enumerate 613 different rules of the language of the Torah. Not mitzvahs, 613 rules of reading language. And he says, if you use my rules, you will understand that there's not a single superfluous word. There's no repetition or poetic justice. It is all precise. And the only way you could possibly end this conversation is by arriving at what Chazal said. Which means, just to understand the way the Malbim's, the Malbim's understanding, which is just, you have to understand the brilliance of this. To make such a claim, that's a very serious claim. And he does this all the way through Tanakh. What the Malbim is essentially saying is packed into the Torah Shebech Sav is the Torah Shebech Alpeh. You just need to be able to be sufficiently academically adept to understand the rules to know how to get there. And if you don't, you need to study a little further. So Gary Karen reading Ayala Tashachar, it's not a short introduction, let me tell you. Right? So before dismissing something, you have to really read it through and understand. And that's why the Malvim, any time, let's say, an earlier Rishon would like say, like the Ibn Ezra would say, ah, it's a kefel inyan milim shanot, right? It's a, it's a doubling up the, the, the idea in, in different words, it's poetic. The Malvim says, no, 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 it's very precise. And this is why it's precise. And these why, this is why the two words mean separate, uh, uh, separate ideas as well. This is what the Malvim says as well. If you want to learn, learn a little more about this, there, um, then you please feel free to read Michelle's father's, uh, Rabbi Dr. Rosenblum's um, treatise on, on the Malbim to appreciate what he was doing and how he, was, uh, he, uh, he, um, how he managed to do this. But essentially, when did the Malbim he lived in the 1800s. Okay, so this is, he's referring to this episode over here uh, that he's referring to happened in 1844. Um, and, um, and in fact, the Malbim was very, very maltreated because of this. 
he was kicked out of his place. He was the rabbi in, in, I believe, in Romania, and he was slandered. They, 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 they sent the, the, those who were, were called the progressives at those time, slandered into the authorities. He was arrested. He was kicked out of his country. He, he, he died on the roads, essentially. He was never really, never really found a community because of the incredibly progressive community that he lived in. By the way, it started with Kashrus because he wanted to reform the Kashrus standards and, the, and because of these essays that he was doing to defend things, which the folks who are more progressive really didn't like. And so it led to, to a slander to the authorities and the government arrested him. It was a really terrible thing. But that's what the, the Malim says. Um, now, the, it turns out that there was another individual who lived just a little bit before him who, uh, who also struggled with these things, but who lived in a much more stronger and more traditional community. His name was Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, or Shramshon Rafal Hirsch, as some would like to call him. Also dealing with the same folks, he was a little earlier in the, in the movement in Germany, because German was, was, uh, the reform movement was flourishing out from Germany outwards. So he was in Germany. And, um, and his observation is actually quite different to the Malbims as the relationship between Torah Shabbat and the Torah Shabbat, the oral and the written Torah. What he says is the following. He says in this beginning of Pashtun Simishpati, when I read this the first time, I was, I was flawed. I was completely flawed. You'll never see the, the Torah Shabbat in the same light once you read this, the, this, this Rav Hirsch. He says the following in source three, going back a page. He says the Torah Shabbat is to the Torah Shabbat in the relationship of short notes on a full and extensive le lecture on any scientific subjects. Do you hear that, that comment? Okay. The Torah Shebech Sav are the lecture notes to the experience of this lecture of, the, of, of, of information. For the student who has heard their whole lecture, short notes are quite sufficient to bring back afresh to his mind at any time the whole subject of the lecture. For him, a word, an added mark of interrogation, or an exclamation, a dot, the underlining of a word, etc., etc., is often quite sufficient to recall to his mind the whole series of thoughts, a remark, etc. For those who have not heard the lecture from the master, such notes would be completely useless. If they would try to reconstruct the scientific context of the lecture literally from such notes, they would of necessity make many errors. So what's really, what really is the Torah, according to Rav Hirsch? The Torah Shaval Peh. That was the lecture. We were at Sinai. God explained this whole business, right? I'm going to give you lecture notes. And if you know what happened to the lecture, you'll be able to look at those lecture notes and understand what the real deal is, which is what I told you at Sinai. So therefore, the, the, actually, the Rav Hirsch is exactly the opposite of what the Malbim was saying. The Malbim is saying is that it's all embedded into the, these words. And if you study these words and you understand what's really going on, you will naturally see the outgrowth of the Torah Shaval Peh from it. But Rav Hirsch says, no, if you didn't get the lecture, means that if you're not connected to the tradition, which explains what really this is all about, then you're going to be looking at this and, you, and you'll be looking like a fool because you'll say, I don't understand, why is that letter bigger? I don't understand, why is this over? Of course you didn't because you missed the lecture. Right? We've all been there. We've all missed those lectures and tried to reconstruct. Things. Not, it's, we have no idea. Right? We have no idea what was going on. We missed all the, all the subtleties. That's what the Rav Hirsch says. So Rav Hirsch will say to, to those, who, the, those who are reforming the Torah, he says, you know, I'm sorry, but you missed the lecture, so of course this doesn't make sense to you. Um, and that's the, that's the, that, that, that is the way that he looks at it. So you say to yourself, okay. Wait, so he's saying Torah was given at Sinai, and Hashem also gave Torah Shabbat Now, Torah Shabbat is a reminder about the sum total of what God conveyed <coughs> to humanity. Right? And so that's the will called the, the, will called the Rosh Hashem, the shorthand of the bigger experience. That's why he looks at it. That, and that gives us a completely different way of looking at things then. Because really, the, essentially, the main... The main relationship of Akash Baruch Hu with the human being is through the Torah Shabbat Peh. We still haven't got to the fact that where does Rav Ravina Ravashi come into this and Ravina Abayu, that we haven't got to that yet. But let's, let's start a basic question. Yeah, Barbara. Except for the fact that when after Yahushua lost it, 
certain amount of halakhas. It wasn't meant until after by people. Good question. Come back to that in a second. Good question. So there seems to be a, the development of Torah Shabbat seems to be later than we than, than, than we would expect so it to be. Like yes. Could be. It could be. But also, it's still, it's, there's, there's still more to talk about because what we haven't got to yet is there's multiple sections of Torah Shabbat there and we conflate them. But let's get, let's get, let's, 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 let's do, unpack that in a second. So now, so the most basic question is, okay, so if, let's say, the Torah Shabbat is so incredibly important and it's the necessary explanation of what's going on or it's the lecture itself, as the, the, the Rav Hirsch says, so then the basic question would be, so just write it down. <laughs> Why wouldn't Hashem just allow us to write it down? Wouldn't it be great? And so you, it's like throughout the ages, why wasn't it written down? Truth be told, says the Ramam, they actually did write it down. Meaning to say it like this, every generation there were leaders and there, was tea, there were teachers. And those, those teachers, when they had good ideas, they would write those good ideas down. But there was never a, a, we'll call it an attempt to put it all in one place. So there were lecture notes all the time. And every time that, let's say, you know, a great sage of one generation had an idea, he wrote lecture notes for himself. But that was in order to be able to, for him to remember, to be able to convey it to the next generation. But then the question begs is, oh, why not just write it down? It would be so simple. We have like, you know, a few volumes, you know, and to take up the sh a shelf and it would be much easier than all the complications we have, we have right now. So there's a number of reasons you are given. Rabbi Arya Kaplan actually has a beautiful essay on this. And, um, and on, on, he makes four suggestions, but they, these are these suggestions which come um, throughout the ages. Suggestion number one is, um, is that, uh, take a look in source six for, for a moment. The second sentence, he says, it was transmitted from master to student in such a manner that if the student had any question, he would be able to ask and thus avoid ambiguity. C human communication is so critical in the process of Torah. You, you know how this goes. You know like when, you have, when there's a really important conversation you need to have? and you text that person? How many times has that ever worked out? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, especially like it's a critical conversation and you need to tell the person something which is really hard and you just text them. I mean, come on, right? It never works. You lose the tone of voice, you lose the, the, the empathy, you lose the face-to-face -face body language, you lose everything that goes with the real conversation that's we had. Don't have important conversations via text. Essentially what a text is, is I'm gonna offload what I want to say to you so you can now sit there and digest it in your own time. That's essentially what you're saying. But that's not the way real conversations happen, right? And so the Torah is also a sensitive document. The Torah is not just a piece of information. In order to convey it, you need to have that communication between master and, and student. You need to have that the questioning. You need to have the clarifying, which can only happen through the context of the social medium, which is through, the, through, through oral transmission. That's, that's value number one. Value number two, he, he points out, is that, is that the Torah Shebech Sav is very limited in the sense that it refers to a sum total of amount of cases and it, and it gives you uh, directions or uh, understandings of those cases. But there are going to be millions and millions of different um, permutations of how human life and the Jewish life will, so to speak, grow organically throughout the generations. How do you, uh, how do you deal with all those situations? So clearly that you need to, if the Torah Shavar had been written down, it would not have been sufficient because it's a development. It's actually, the, and this is what we're going to see is, Barbara, to your point, there's another, that something is developing over here. It's not simply stagnant. It's not simply a set corpus of material because it is always growing. We have to figure out how that always growing relates to tradition, which seem to be two ideas at odds with each other. That's number two. Number three is, um, is, I mean, in the third paragraph, he says, if the entire Torah had been given in writing, 
everyone would have been able to interpret it as he desired. This would lead to division and discord among the people who followed the Torah in different ways. I mean, look, look how look how cults have arrived. I mean, like it, you don't have to go too far to realize that people, uh, you know, take things too too literally and or misinterpret things. So if the Torah Torah had been written down, written down, there would be just much more misinterpretation. Like you have different sects in the second base of Midrash. I mean, we're finding all these things from Qumran, right? You know, in Qumran by the Dead Sea. Fantastic. Qumran was a sect of Judaism that you know dismissed the Torah Shabbat and just reinterpreted the Torah Shabbat Imagine the Torah Shabbat had been written down there. Would, there would have been multiple other sects as well. And number four, he says, is that, um, and this is a very interesting thing, is that the Torah Shabbat is what remains uniquely Jewish. Do you notice that? Everything else has been adopted by the other folks, right? So like the Torah Shabbat that was the Old Testament. The Christians, you know, suddenly think the Quran, rather they took the pieces they liked, right? But the, but, but the point is, I mean, Muhammad had to make it off something, right? He had to start somewhere. So it was the pagans and the Jews. That's where, that's where he was living in the Arabian Peninsula. So he took the parts of the Bible he liked. The rest he said was abrogated. You know, it's a very, uh, you know, interesting intellectual exercise to do that kind of thing. But nonetheless, um, you, you, what essentially you're doing is they were taking what was written. They didn't take what was not written because it wasn't available to them. That makes sense? I mean, you say the Torah Shabbat Peh remained oral because in a certain sense that was a closer evaluation of what Judaism really is, what God's will is, not the Torah Shabbat Sav, because the Torah Shabbat Sav was abrogated and copied and pasted by all the other folks. Most, half of the world's population have used the Torah, Torah Shabbat Sav in any form or fashion. Yes? Good. Aha, uh-huh, that's why you're a third part of the series. <laughs> Very good. That's why we need to do a deal dispute next week and authority the, the week afterwards because there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot that's going to go into this. But precisely, you're, you're raising an extremely important question. And then how do we know about the posterity of the process as well? So that's what we're going to get to. But let's, let's deal with the basics right now and then we'll get to the more uh, complicated issues. But now, now, now we say, okay, so if that's true that it was left oral, for these multiple reasons, right? Whether it be for the sake of, of, of the social empathy that is part of the conveying, or whether it be because of the, the, the lack of ambiguity of when it's written down or being or people misinterpreting it. So then you say to yourself, so let it, why is it not oral today? Why was it written down? There was the Mishnah, and then there was the Gemara, and then there was the Goenim, and the, the response, and then there was the Rishonim, and then there was the Akronim. There was all these uh, different stages of Allah. So why was it written down in the first place? The Gemara in Gittin tells us, it was a critical time that they needed to do this. Why did they do that? So the Rambam says, and this, by the way, I just, I really highly, highly recommend for those who have access to this, is to read the Rambam's introduction to his Mishnah Torah. The Rambam deals with all of this. this, is, this I don't know how anybody could learn Torah without learning this Akdama, this introduction. We actually learned this a couple of years ago in the summer together. It's important to know what this Rambam really deals with all of these issues. And so the Rambam, the Rambam explains, we're going to quote just a, 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 a basic uh, quotation here in source 7, second paragraph. Why did Rabbi Yehuda Nasi in the year... Um, in the year one, um, 18, uh, 188 for, in the common era. Why did he in that year write down the Mishnah? To leave it as it was, as an oral tradition. He saw that there were fewer and fewer um, um, students who were able to be able to be sufficiently adept. And there were more and more problems occurring to the Jewish community. The Jewish community was now, was now moving further and further abroad, away from Israel, in the post-Hadrianic persecutions. And the evil empire is, uh, is extending. What's he referring to? 
the Romans, right, is, is just extended, meaning wherever you go, it's under Roman rule um, the, the, uh, at this point. And Israel is left to the wayside in the gutters of history. He wrote a, a so to speak, a, a, a one corpus material, the Torah Shavapir, to as a reminder not to forget what the teachings were. So he felt that it was a necessary component, even though much would be lost in the translation into writing. Whenever you translate an idea in, th in, in thought to speech or speech to writing, you're losing something. And he knew he was losing something, but he felt that the losses would be greater if he didn't write it down. That's what seems to be happening over here. Now, there's something worthwhile, worthwhile investigating. We're not going to do it now. But the way that he did it was, uh, I would say, an educational paradigm. I incredible. What, what Rabbi Yudha Nasi did was he structured this, this text, which should have been oral, in a way that required oral teachers, uh, teachers um, uh, to, to be able to still facilitate its understanding. So for instance, um, he wrote it inductively as rather, rather than deductively. So like let's say if you and I were writing an educational textbook, what we would say essentially is, is uh, okay, let's start at the very beginning. Right, so let's, let's talk about the halachas of, uh, I don't know, give, a, give an example, Nidarim, right? So we would start the process of this Nidarim explanation, we would say, okay, so to make a neder, um, this is what a neder is. And then there's four subcategories of a neder. Then there's this thing called a shavua. A neder actually works and operates on, a, on, on an object. A shavua actually relates to the person themselves. Now, let's apply this to the next. That's how we would do it. That's not how Nadarim starts. So if anybody's doing the daf yomi right now, that's not how Nadarim starts. <laughs> you might figure out on, on the run and daf tezainu as to the difference between a, a neder and a shavua. But that's after you figure out what a kinui means at the beginning, which is, is clearly not what was the... So that means to say that so Rayura Nasi was not structuring this like a textbook. What was he doing? This is what's called inductive reasoning, which means to say it's kind of like, and this is an example I think everybody in the room can appreciate here, is imagine trying to learn the rules of cricket by listening <coughs> to a radio description, a radio narration of a cricket match that's live. Right? Right, so yeah. that's precisely the point. <laughs> let's say that, so let's say you don't have access to a certain, we'll call it culture, and you're trying to learn about that culture by it being described in real time. Right? So you, you hear, he hits it for a four, it's a clear six, it was caught in, you know, the third wiki keeper caught, you're like, what, 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 what is that? And then you hear it again and again and again, and slowly you induce, that means to say, you induce from it the rules of what's really going on, right? But he's not giving it to you as, you know, we'll call 1.1.A, then 1.1.1B. That's not how he's doing it. Why? Because it's necessary to invest effort to induce the rules, and it's necessary to have a teacher to make sure you're getting the rules correct. So when Rabbi Yudanasi did this, he did this in such a way that it wasn't now, in a certain sense, sidestepping the need for teacher or <coughs> augmentation from the oral tradition. So it is, it's very clear. This is what we'll call an inductive reasoning, which is why the Gemara is so hard and it's successful because we're still doing it right. Meaning today we're still trying to plumb the depths of those conversations about the real lecture they knew about. So we can understand the lecture, but it wasn't telling us the lecture. It was a conversation about the lecture. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's called the inductive reason. That's the educational paradigm and it's worked because here we are and there are more people learning Daf Yomi today than ever before. Right? And that's, that's, what's, and that's the success of Rabbi program. But let's go a little further. That, that, that's what I'm putting as a side point because there's much, much more to talk about. How he incorporates Chasurei Mechzerei how all these stirrers between Mishnahs and, uh, which were naturally put in there in order to facilitate our, our further conversation. But suffice to say. Now, so we say, okay, so let, let's talk about numbers now, right now. So how long, how long can we say was that chain from Sinai to Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi was the, the, the 
um, the general editor of the Talmud Bavli. Talmud Bavli was a century later than Talmud Yerushalmi. Talmud Yerushalmi was in the, 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 the fourth century. The, um, the Talmud Bavli was in the fifth century common era. So how long was that chain? We're talking about 1871 years. It's a significant amount of time. So you say, lots can be lost, can be lost. So the Ramam actually goes through it and he, in his Agdoma, in his introduction to Mishnah Torah, the Ramam tells you exactly who transmitted to who because we have that chain. And the Ramam gives it at the number 40. There are only 40 individuals from Sinai to Rav Ashi. That's pretty remarkable, folks. <laughs> That's pretty remarkable. There are 40 people. There are more than 40 people in this room right now, right? Just understand what that means. 40 people were the bearers, were the responsible in their generation to bear the Torah from one generation, the oral Torah from one generation to the next to ensure its posterity. That's pretty remarkable. And he gives us the list, and it's worth our looking at the list. When you look at the list, you'll see that there are some, there are some individuals who, are, who have a longer period of time that they're carrying it, and some who are actually concurrent with others. So for instance, Achia Hashiloni, who appears in Melachim, is a student of Dawud Amalek, but he lived a longer life, so he was able to transmit it to Eliyahu Anovi, as an example. But there are other people who, let's say like Hoshea, Amos, and Yeshayel, who lived at the same time, but they are counted as three individuals, right? They lived at, they lived at different places, but they, as the prophets of the time, were the transmitters of the oral Torah. Which, so, so just to understand, to, to crunch the numbers, that's a very significant thing, which takes us all the year to the, to the, to the 5th century common era when the Gomorrah was, was sealed. So when we are talking about the Gomorrah as we have it, in terms of mistakes and in terms of understanding what was transmitted, there's a, a lot to be said in terms of the, the narrowness of that transmission. Afterwards, we'll get to Bezrat Hashem. That's going to be for later. But let's take a little, fur, a little further. So now, you ask yourself, okay, so... So where do they get their ideas from? So Barbara, this is like your, your point, and like, how is their transmission, but how does it keep growing, right? How they keep saying extra things. Where do they get those extra things from? So the Ramah says there's actually three parts to the Torah Shaval And this, to me, was the most illuminating revolution uh, when, when, I, when I learned this the first time, because we, we, we simply don't articulate this point. This, to me, this is worth the, tic uh, the, the, the ticket of entry for, for today. Is the Ramam has a sefer. Um, the Ramam wrote Mission Torah, which is essentially a summary of all of Torah Shabal Peh. It's worthwhile reading the Ramam's. The Ramam, he calls it Mishnah Torah, which means a repetition of the Torah. He writes in 14 sections. He's, he subdivides the Torah into a textbook. What he's doing is he's reversing the process of the Gemara, right? So he's turning deductive, inductive reasoning to deductive reasoning. So he, he puts it into categories which are logical and starts at the beginning. Right, that's what he does, which is why he got so critiqued, because there were many who believed that it should remain only inductive. Um, and so the, the Rambam did, did this. And in the, his last of the 14 books, called Sefer Shoftim, he has a book called Mamrim. In this book, he, um, he describes the process of the Torah Shaval Peh. Um, he touches on his in his introduction as well, but here he says it pretty explicitly, and he says there are three parts of Torah Shaval Peh. So when we refer to the oral law, it's not all the same. Let's take a look at source nine. Three lines in, middle of the line. He says, Echad devorim shalomdu osam mi vem Torah Shaval Peh. They are the things that we have in tradition. That means to say from generation to generation to generation, this was transmitted. There was no equivocation. This is what Moses said at Sinai, and that was given from generation to generation. That's, that's uh, area number one. The next section is something which is developed through what's called the hermeneutic principles, or the logical principles of expansion of the Torah. And number three is, And then there are new things that they introduce, whether it be a gezerah, which is a decree, right, that's a withholding, a takana, a new thing to do, a minhag, those are new things which are instituted. So let's just appreciate what the Ramam is saying over here. He's saying that when it comes to the first section of Torah Shabal Peh, that was what Moses heard at Sinai. 
Right? So, so Hashem said, this is the, this, you've got to keep Shabbos, as it says in the Torah Shabbat And Moshe Rabbeinu explained that it is patterned after, Hashem told Moshe, it is patterned after the Menechah Zemishkan. And the Menechah Zemishkan incorporated these 39 categories. And that's why you keep Shabbos, which is why nobody, Nobody in all of history has ever argued if there are 39 principles on Shabbos. Did you notice that? There's no dispute about 39 principles. Everybody has it. Why? Because that's what God told Moses. And Moses told Yeshua. And Yeshua told the Zikanim. And we have it still today because we have the same transmission. Nothing ever changed. There was no addition. There was no editing. That was it. It was very specifically, that was what, what was conveyed. Other examples of this. So the, the, the Torah says, uh, it says the following. The Torah says, The Torah says, you should take this beautiful fruit, right? Or this returning fruit. So how do you know what it is? So I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm like a kind of tropical guy. I like mangoes, right? It's beautiful, it returns, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm, I'm into that. So why can't I say that it's a mango, right? The answer is, and why, why does nobody say it's a mango? Why does nobody say it's a banana? Why does no, right? The answer is because that wasn't a dispute. That was what Moshe was told at Sinai. That was the Torah Shabal And Hashem says, when I said this Priyat it refers to a esrog. It refers to the citron. Now, the Kumura in Sukkah darshans a number of drushas as to how to get there. <laughs> They weren't trying to find the answer. It wasn't like the rabbis were saying, what could it be? I wonder if in the Mediterranean area, the dates are also... No, They're what was really happening over there is they knew the answer already, says the Rambam. And they were just trying to find a way, a, a hook to, pair, to, to hang on it, how the, the Pesukim, like the Malbim was doing, how the Pesukim relates to what they already knew. That was what was going on. They weren't extrapolating. <laughs> they already had the answer, which is why there is no debate. Why it's in black and square? No debate. Right, do you understand? There are certain things in Torah which are simply a tradition. Those are transmitted and we still have them and nobody disagrees. Nobody in um, traditional Judaism ever disagrees on this. There's no machloikas in the section. That's section number one. Okay, and that section didn't expand, it didn't contract. It simply was. The second section is where the expansion happens. And that's the expansion through the hermeneutical principles. You say that's a very long and complicated word. We say it every day. Why? Because in the city we say, Rabbi Shmuel had a tradition that the Torah is expanded with 13 principles. In fact, according to some, there are 26. And some, according to some, there are 52 principles of expansion of the Torah. These are logical principles. Most famous, of course, is which is a sort of a logical build-up, right? So there are many, many, um, you know, these Gezerah Shava. There's all, the, all, all these tools you'll see utilized in order to direct new rules. That means to say that Hashem endowed the human being. This is a pretty dangerous thing. Hashem says to the human being, I trust you enough. Those who are, have enough, we'll call it cultural baggage, to expand the Torah using these principles and you will arrive at new principles. So let, let, let's, take a, let's take an example of, of that. On, we just passed Sukkot recently. So the, uh, the first hour of Sukkot, the, the halacha is that one should have a kibetzah in the Sukkah. Not a kazayas, but a kibetzah in the Sukkah. Where does that come from? Why is the first hour of Sukkot so critical? Why is that if it, even if it's raining, we'd have to eat in the Sukkah? The answer is because it's connected to the first hour of Pesach. What's called Tesov Tesov, the 15-15 dinks, while the Torah uses the same languages. Right? It's a gzera shava. Right? That is an expression of the second category of Torah Shabbat Peh, where they are expanding what, what, what was. Rabbi Shimon Am Sunni darshaned every S in the Torah. Darshan, the word darshaned is expansion. Right? He's expounding. That's not the first section. Drasha is an expansion, right? So Rabbi Shimon Am Sunni darshaned every S in the Torah. That every word Tabad used the word S, which is an um, article essentially in speech. It was including something else, and he got to S Hashem Lakechatira, you should fear S Hashem your God. And he said, okay, that's it. He threw in the towel. He retracted his, his doctoral thesis because he knew that this doesn't work. There's no, nobody you can attach to God. So Rabbi Akiva, S Lerabos Talmud Yachachavim. 
Now there is an S. There is a person who's trying to bear the law of God. That that is also part of the the expression of Yasa Shem Lakechatzir. That's what Rabbi Akiva said. Why were Rabbi Shimon Yasuni and Rabbi Akiva arguing? The answer is it wasn't a tradition. This was how to apply a principle of expansion, and this area, in fact, was growing. This area grew over time, and there was an expression of using the logic God gave us. The tools were, were transmission. The use of the tools were expansion. That's the, that's the second thing. In fact, Rabbi Arya Kaplan actually argues that the principles derived from tradition, the principles derived from expansion, in fact, relatively equal in terms of the amount of a corpus of material covered. Fascinating, fascinating if you go through the entire Gemara. And finally, there's a third one, which is very famous, which is Siyagim, Gezeros, and Takonos. Let's think of some which are, these are not expansions of another principle. These are simply for the sake of the community at the time, and they became part of Halacha. So as an example, very famously, Muktzah, Right, so Mukta is not one of the 39 principles of Shabbos. It's not one of the 39 Avos. It is, it, there was actually different stages of development of Mukta, depending on what type. There's different categories. There's six different categories of Mukta. But, um, you know, some of them came from the times of Nehemiah and the prophets, and later on, some of them by the sages of the Gemara. But be it as it may, these were an example of where the Chachamim said, this generation needs to um, have a little bit of a siyag, a little bit of a fence around what's being discussed, and we're going to do this. It's not just fences, it's not just protective, it's also proactive. So as an example, we celebrate Hanukkah and Purim, that's fantastic. <laughs> Torah didn't say that, right? So where did that come from? That's, what, that's a takana. That's when Chazal instituted a new practice as part of the, our old Torah. They did not get that as a tra tradition. They did not expand that from the logical principles of the Torah, but they now said this is what's necessary for this generation. Three separate categories. The second two are subject to machloikas, or um, sometimes, right? There's a way of resolving that machloikas, which we'll deal with next week, and how machloikas <coughs> developed or was retained. But be it as it may, these are the three the three different sections that we that we have in terms of uh, Torah Shalpeh. So when we talk about the Torah Shalpeh, this is why it's interesting. We say, wait a second, how does Ravina and Ravashi, how does the machloikas of Rav and Abai relate to what happened on Sinai? So it depends which section of the Torah Shalpeh you're talking about. So when it comes to what the Esrog is, they're not arguing on that. That, that, that part was, that was given. That was a given. It was always was a given. When people say everything in Judaism is a machlaikas, everybody is arguing, that's not true. There are certain principles when, you, when there's no argument. As an example, how big is a tefach? How, how, much, how much do you have to carry on Shabbos? How much do you have to eat to be considered, to be considered eating? How, how high is, is, is the sukkah? All those things are called shiurim. They are called, as the Gemara says, halacha lamoisha misinai. Came from Sinai, no one's debating that. Which is why when it talks about everything in, in Judaism is a debate, well, in the second section, yes, a lot, there's a lot of debates. And we'll have to see how to resolve those debates, but not the first section. So a lot of what we have is clearly the way it always was. And that was what was given at Sinai as well. So just appreciate this. We have to figure out when the expansion process, the second category, started developing. Get, get back to that in a moment. But um, the question is, is what about today? So you say, okay, so I'm feeling very creative today, right? So what about me? So I would like to start using my, my logical, uh, uh, you know, um, um, uh, pr principles and, and I would like to start, you know, I'll, 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 do, I'll, I'll do a little bit of examination of Rebbe Shmuel's laws and I'd like to, uh, you know, sort of, you know, move the process along. So does, how does that work exactly? So the Ramam says, the beginning of Hilchus Mamre in the second parak, take a look at source 13. So let's say there's Sanhedrin, the great court, comes along and says, we need to do X because this is appropriate based on our, our logical expansion of the Torah Shaval Peh. And he says, And later based in says, you know what? That's not really applicable anymore. We don't think this is the logical extrapolation. The second basin has the warrant and license to be able to retract what the first basin says. 
Great, right? So meaning to say, there are different times called for different, different measures. And they may actually have a different logical principle. And it's not just one person. It's not authoritative. There's a, there's a, there's a Sanhedrin and it's voted. And the pro process of voting is very precise. But they, you are allowed to. So, so says the case of Mishnah of Yosef Karo in his commentary on the Rambam before he wrote the Shulchan Aruch, before he wrote the Beis Yosef. He says, wait a second. If that's the case, then what's stopping us from now to like, let's get together, which is maybe that's what's stopping us now. But let, let's get together. Uh, <laughs> we, we put together a court and we all say, listen, you know, Yom Tov Sheni, right? Yom Tov Sheni Shigolios, right? We know the calendar, right? So let's, let's us vote. We'll, re, we'll reapply the laws. We'll, 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 we'll reassess the situation and we'll vote. And according to the Rambam, if, it's the, if you have a base to over here uh, later on, they, 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 they could do this. <coughs> so the Kesem Mishra says a very important rule at the very bottom of, of page 7 in source 14. Again, I'm not putting, we're not, this is not here to learn all inside, but it's important just to have the text to realize this is not me talking, this is, this is, this is the, I'm, I'm expressing what, what is the truth of, of, the, of the generations. The, the second last line, the last word is im tomar. If you're going to ask me, im ken ama why is it that the sages of the Gomorrah never argued on the sages of the Mishnah? Do you notice that? The deference with which the sages of the, uh, the Gomorrah treat the sages of the Mishnah is incredible. So much so that let's say you have a dispute between two, uh, two Amorai. They are the sages of the Gomorrah. And there's a Mishnah in concur that's concurrent with one of them and not the other. The other will now have to find a way to make that Mishnah work. Right? You'll never find an Amorah who says, well, that's just what I say. You know, he ne never said, it never happens. You, the the, the Amorah will try to find at least one opinion, if not all the opinions in the Mishnah, that will augment his interpretation of the law. Why does he do that? After all, the he should be able to do this. Says the the, 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 the Mishnah, the top of the next page. Shalom at the end of the line. It is possible to suggest there was a acceptance, a communal acceptance, that once the Mishnah was sealed in the times of Rabbi Yudha Nasi, the next generations would not argue with the Mishnah. They could expand, they could apply, but they did not change what the Mishnah said. And similarly, the closure of the Gomorrah, which is why, this is so important, is that today we may have fantastic ideas, but we don't change what the Gomorrah says. We're in a certain sense in maintenance right now. Application, fantastic. And applications happening all the time. Medical halacha, technology, all the time. We're not changing. We're applying the principles of old to new situations. We don't have the license to change what they said. And we're not, yet at, 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 we're not at a stage where we have the Sanhedrin Agadol yet again to be able to have the ability to be able to do that. Which in a certain sense puts us into a state of <clears throat> this stasis. There's a certain like, you know, freeze where we have in terms of the expansion of the Torah Shaval Pes, that second section has now been closed. We are no longer making drashas. We are no longer uh, inducing new ideas. But we are applying those new ideas as well, which is why sometimes we come across things where we'd say, if we were in charge, if we had, you know, if we were to get together a council, we might do differently, but we don't have that license yet. God willing, at the times of the Mashiach, we will. But the, 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 the certain big things, there are some things we can. Sorry, yes. So the question is, if, there, if the principle was that those shouldn't be written down, because as you said, there was a danger of writing it down, because it would then be closed for future generation and future application, then hasn't it to some extent happened that all those dangers of writing it down has come to being all those years that they didn't write it down <coughs> now it's been centuries and 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 is it possible that the reason why the principle of not writing it down is because it should have continued to evolve based on generations that came subsequently and maybe some of the rules 
were planned obsolescence by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In other words, they, they were to be, to have evolved, and the fact that we wrote it down, all those warnings about writing it down have come to pass. I agree with you totally. So that, yes, today we are in a state where we are no longer in what we call a evolving Torah Shalpeh in the sense of the expansion like we're supposed to be. And that's precisely what Rabbi Nasi said. He saw that what was happening in the state of exile was the inability to have an, a centralization of that process. And therefore he said, I'm going to take the risk of calcification of that process to, pro to preserve it rather than continue the, the, the evolution when it's going to fall apart because it won't succeed in exile. So therefore, yes, you, your assessment is correct. And we in exile, as we continue to be we're, uh, dis uh, disenfranchised in almost every society that we have come to with the inability in most societies up till really 200 years ago to be able to even hold any, uh, any level of academia in any country or to have the time or wherewithal to be able to study. If we didn't, if Rabbi had not done that, we would have suffered. We, the Torah Shabbat would have, in fact, not would not continue evolving because of the, the suffering of exile. So this is what we'll call the second best option, which is why the Gemara says in Gittin, Then what was what does Mayfair Torah Secha means? They annulled the Torah. There's a great loss given when they when they closed the Mishnah, and you and you're 100 percent right. But that is the better of the of the two evils, which this other evil would have been would have would have been a decentralization and therefore inability to be able to hold together, and they developed into multiple Torahs, and ultimately they, we would have we would have been different sects, that, and, that, and we, that would that would have did not taken too long. Rabbi Yonasi saw saw the writing on the wall already, and that's that's the where we are. But the mm. Torah Shabbat Al is not is not halacha, is not practical halacha. Rambam is the Shulchan Aruch is so. It's really intent on how, or an evolution of how Rabbam got to where he went, how the Shulchan Aruch got to where it went, and it's really kind of like what we do in law, which is congressional intent. Like, we have the law, but what did they mean? So, I mean, it's, it's, a ni it's nice learning it, and it's nice to see how it evolved, but it's not halacha. Not necessarily. So, so, so it's, it's the building blocks of all the halacha we have today. So if you ask the Rambam, who is a Rishon, so he's in that bracket of time we call a Rishon, a medieval commentator. So the Rambam and all the contemporaries of the Rambam, Ramban and Rashi and Toysos, and everybody who lived in that stage, uh, stage and era were essentially synthesizing. Right? What they were doing is they were saying, let's look at the sum total of Torah, Torah Shabbat Peh, the Gemara and the Mishnah, and it doesn't always work. So they had a Toysos academies were essentially tasked with looking at particular sections of Talmud and how to synthesize that with all the contradictions and all other parts of the Talmud, thereby yielding, by rubbing the two together and having to find a way to resolve them, if a resolution was possible, they would arrive at certain outcomes. Those outcomes would have incredible practical um, import. So the Rambam was doing the same thing as well. And so uh, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say it as far as you had said, which is that it's, it's, it's not applicable, it's defunct, or I would say a lot of it is, and that some of it needs tweaking or synthesizing in order to be able to do that. So they, a lot of the Rishonim based their ideas in the development of the understanding of the, of, of the Gemara. That's where they were starting with. And you're right, it does come down to congressional intent sometimes when it comes to these things, but sometimes it's not about intent, it's about actually practically what it means. Um, like, what, what does it mean, Tachlis, in my life? So a lot of the Rambam is developed straight out of the Gemara, out of the Go'onim, as an example. But this is a bigger conversation. You're, you're right, there's a, there's a lot to, to be had over here. I want to just do, if just for the sake of time, before we finish, I want to wrap up within an hour, just one, two last pieces I think are really important to this process, and then a lot of this will deal, it would, sorry, we'll come back to it next week, which is Machlokas. Um, but um, the question is, is, so how does what a sage is suggesting now relate to what was then, what, was that, what, what Hashem wanted then? 
because it's all right in, in, in section number one of the Torah Shabbat where, where the sages are tasked with transmitting in the most, we'll call clear way, what happened at Sinai to us. And they succeeded because we have it, right? What about the second, the second section? So let's say when Rabbi Akiva says, es Rabbi when the Gemara makes the Gzereshav of Tesvav, Tesvav of Sukkah, all these things where there's an expansion of the Torah Shalpeh. So like, how does that relate to what happened at Sinai? So the most basic idea is, well, he's using a tool that was given at Sinai, right? So that tool that he's using, Zereshav or Kavachom, were given at Sinai, but the application, how does that, how does that work? What, was, what would God have said about this, right, that in, in, this, in, in, in this case? Rabbi Rebbe Chodon Vassalin has an incredible essay, and he talks about, he, he talks about a pasuk in Yirmiyahu. The pasuk is talking about child sacrifice. HaKosh Baruch Hu says that he never wants a child sacrifice. A few people made a mistake in, in the times of the Tanakh and <clears throat> went the wrong route. But um, the, 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 the way that it's described is Yirmiyahu says, take a look in Source 15 in the, in the second section next to Rebbe Chodon's picture. It was the Efshel Afarish Kavanaz HaKosu in Yirmiyahu. Ubonu es bonois abal listrofes b'neim ba'esh. Um, the, the, these people bought, made these altars to sacrifice their children. He says, Asher Sibisi, I did not command this. Dibarti, I did not speak of this. Also, it didn't even come across my mind, so, like, so to speak. What does that mean? Says Rabbi Khanan. The, the Aramaic translation of the Apostolic explains. What does Tzivisi mean that I did not command? That was which was written down in the Torah Shabbat Sav. That the second section is Lodi Barti is not prescriptive but descriptive. What's descriptive Torah? That's what the Prophet said afterwards. So what Yeshayahu says about Shabbos, right? The Karas of the Shabbos, I think he's describing the experience of Shabbos. That's the second part of Dibarti. What's also Alibi Veloi Rava Kadomi? That I never wanted to, it, to I never intended that for that to be. What does that refer to? And he says at the end of this paragraph, in little by the little gimel, he says, She'ain Olav Loitzivu Loidibur El Rotson Hashem Bilvad. This is a remarkable observation. When a sage of a particular generation is trying to derive a new Takana, a new Gezerah, what he's trying to approximate is what would the divine will be in this situation. That's what he's trying to do. We know what Hashem wrote. We know what Hashem said. We know what He prescribed and we know what He described. What did He want in the absence, in the large, vacant, neutral areas of life? How to tie shoelaces? What, what would he want in these situations? And the job of the sages of the earlier generations was to figure out what the Ratzon Hashem was in that case, which means that if we to interpret this correctly, the mitzvahs which, which remained, the mitzvahs Durabonim which remained, essentially were an expression of the Ratzon Hashem in that way. As an example, let's take Anjek Nezagdala. Anjek Nezagdala introduced brachos. Hashem never commanded us to make brachos. He commanded us to do a Birkas Hamazon, and perhaps a Birkas HaTorah, but he never told us to say a shayakal before drinking a coffee. What happened was, the sages understood this time, that as Hebrew was being lost, as the exile had plagued us, the first exile, and we were losing a system, organic service of God was not working anymore. So you know what they said? We're going to introduce a new system called brachas, we're going to put these stop signs in the, in the, in the, in the road of your day, to stop and think about God every time you, you, you put something into your mouth or you smell something. And we're going to take, give different categories of it. When you see wonders of God, you're going to also stop. Now, we, we, sh we drive through stop signs all the time, <laughs> both on the street and in our, in our lives, but, but they, they put the stop signs there. What were they doing? Says the Rav that was what was called Ratzon Hashem. Not Sivisi, not command, not, not, not described in the VM, but also Alibi, what Hashem really wanted in that situation. That's a very profound statement to make, which means the gravity of the responsibility of a sage making that observation. Not today. The sages are not making, not making new enactments today in the same way. 
But when Anshik Nezadol is an example to this, they were, uh, they were intuiting, which is why they were the last of the prophets, intuiting what Hashem really wanted in that situation. That's a big responsibility to have, um, the, the, as he says. But now, let's go a little further. So how, how does Moshe Rabbeinu relate to what was said later on? The Gomorrah tells us. It was an inc- a fascinating incident where Moshe Rabbeinu came out to Shemaim on Har Sinai at Matantar, and he saw Akash Baruch who was tying Kesarim cr- crowns to the letters. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, What's that for? So Hashem says there's going to be something in the future that's going to darsh in all these things. His name is Rebbe Kiva. So Rebbe Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'd love to, I'd love to go to his shir. I'd love to see what's going on. <laughs> and um, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent Moshe Rabbeinu down and he goes in the, in the shir of, of uh, Rebbe Kiva. And the way it used to be is that there used to be, there were seven lines of students. And depending on how, how uh, sophisticated you were, that's how far back or forward you would be. Right? The further back means so the more rudimentary a student you were. Moshe Rabbeinu was sitting in the, se- in the seventh row, he couldn't understand what was going on. <laughs> so the Gemara says, so the, the, the Gemara says Moshe Rabbeinu was very, very concerned about this. And in the end, it says in, on page nine, at the very bottom, please show me. There was an eighth line of students. <laughs> no idea what was going on this year. Moshe Rabbeinu. Toshash Koichai. He got very upset. He got concerned. Came on Shegiyah L'Davar Echad. Amr Talmidov. Rebbe Minayin Lecha. So the student said, Rebbe Kiva, where did you get that from? He says, Amaloi Halacha L'Moshe Misinai. Nisiyash Vodaita. And Moshe Rabbeinu was like, so what does that mean? What does that mean? He asked me, this is, this is precisely the, the, the place that we need to start, right? Which is, here, clearly, which part of the Torah are we talking about? Not section one of Torah Shalapeh. That Moshe Rabbeinu knew. It's the second section that drushes on, on the crowns of the letters. That was an expansion of the Torah. Section two of the, the Torah Shalapet, just to clarify where we are. And Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, he had no idea what was going on. But when he heard there was a lochal of Moshe Sinai, he was, uh, there was the issue of Da. So what, what could that mean? So we could just on a basic level, he could know, well, he was using the tools that I gave them. So they carried on, right? That, that's the most basic understanding. But what does that mean precisely? So it says, says the Rav Tzalak coin of Lublin, he has multiple, multiple essays on this. He has a section called Likutei Ma'amorim, where he says, and I'd like to learn it together because it's so critically important to our understanding. And he says the following. He says, The entire corpus of Torah Shavu had not yet been expanded at the time of El Matan Torah. It would go until the Mashiach comes that the Torah Shabbat would be expanded sufficiently to, to, to deal, deal with all the situations of history. This means, even though the Torah was revealed, many of them are still embedded and hidden in the Torah Shabbat, in the written Torah. It was given stuma, which means closed. It wasn't fully expanded. Rakshi Koleles Kolamit includes all of them. Dugma Sa'av Shiesh Bamoichoi Kol Oisam Tipim Shasid La Sidle Alazria. Now, let's one turn this into a uh, more, we'll call it a 21st century biological description. In the DNA of both the father and the mother lie the instructions which are going to be expanded in all the children that, that are going to come from that mother and that father. I mean, say that, but you don't see it. I don't understand. It's a cell. It's just a cell, right? The answer is no, it's all, it's all embedded in it. He says, and let's stop the next column. Embedded in it is the potential, the pregnant potential of expansion. That's what, what was given at Sinai, which means Moshe Rabbeinu would never really understand what Rebekah was going to do because all he saw was the cell. 
He did not see the development of that cell into its expansion into Babylonian reality later on. He did not see the application of, of that reality as it expanded later on. And that's what the Gemara says actually, Masha Talmud Vosik Osid Leishadesh. What a later student is going to be Machadesh is what Moshe Rabbeinu originally said. Not because Moshe Rabbeinu articulated those <laughs> concepts, but he articulated the meta concept which would develop into the precise granule concept later on. So you say to yourself, and we're doing this really too fast to appreciate it properly, but you say to yourself, but that doesn't make sense in the sense that we never see the expansion <coughs> of section 2 of Torah Shalpeh expanding till a much later time. Think about this for a moment. During the times of the prophet, no, prophets, at the times of Yeshayahu, nobody's talking about Torah Shalpeh in the same way. Do you notice that? There's no mission at the times of Yeshayahu. There's no, there, there's no discussions in the base medrash at the times of Shmuel and Navi that, we, that we're aware of. There are a few ex, uh, uh, examples in the, in the Gemara, but for the most part, the mission starts with Torah Moshe, Kibbal Torah, Messina, Moshe, Yeshayahu. Where does it start with? Anshek Nesak Zagdala, pre-mission at 2,500 years ago. So what happened from Sinai till Anshek Nesak Zagdala? Where was the Torah Shalpeh? Why? We know that the first section was there, the transmission. The, the, the tradition, but what about the second section? Why was it not developed? Why was it not an explosion of development of rules until Anshaykhness Zagdala? So says Rotsalak HaKoyin in an incredible, uh, incredible view. He says, they didn't need to. They didn't need to because when you want to know what the Rotsan Hashem was at the time of Prophets, what did you do? You speak to the Prophets. There was no categorical system. There was no rubric. There was no matrix created for a system that governed the people with rules. Why? Because they didn't need to. If I needed to find where my lost donkey is, what would I do? I go to the prophets. That's what Shaul and Shaul to be the Hamelech would be would did, right? And that was an, ex, an example of how people operated in those times. And therefore, it was not a rule-based system, but it was an experiential-based system where there were prophets. And you know what happened? Is that system fell apart? When did that system fall apart? Why did the prophet prophetic system fall apart? Well, first of all, because the prophets started started coming, but in the times of the exile, because you no longer had there were a few prophets in exile. Example being Daniel, Yechezkel. Right, they were in exile, but for the most part, the prophets were ceasing, and the people were now now in a decentralized leadership form. Actually, against Zadola, who lived at the beginning of the second Beth Samidash, with the remaining prophets, Chagai, Zachariah, Malachi, Mordechai, Esther, right, who are part of Anshaykh and Zadola, realized that this system is not working. And they say, we need to now tap into section two of the Torah Shalabi. You know those, those that toolbox, those 13, 26 tools, which were never really expanded to create a system which would encompass Jewish life, even in the absence of a centralized authority? That's what we need to do now, which is why the explosion of development of Torah Shalpeh, the second section only started for real at the beginning of the second bias Shani, going from Anashik Nazadala to the Zugos, the two pairs of leaders, all the way through to the end of the Zugos, which is Hillel and Shammai, moving on to the sages of the Mishnah, moving on to the sages of the Gemara as well. So this, the, in a certain sense, stages two and three of the Torah Shalpeh only really exploded later on. This is part of the, uh, the perspective again. Folks, obviously much more, much more to deal with. This is the first hour. Bezra Hashem will come back next week to uh, talk about a little bit about Machlokas, which is one of the, our favorite Jewish topics. Have a wonderful and meaningful day.